0: morning. I know it's also the beginning of fall break. And so we have many who are uh, traveling and enjoying some time away. But we are very thankful that you are here Uh, no matter who you may be. We're thankful that you have made the decision to gather with us this morning in this hour of worship. I want to invite you to join us back here tonight at six o'clock. I'm going to be I'm going to be preaching I'm going to be talking about the importance of listening. Um, don't raise your hand, but think to yourself, am I a good listener? And then think about the people who are closest to you. If you were to ask them, maybe your spouse, am I a good listener? Would the, would the answer be different than the answer you came up with? Listening is uh, extremely difficult. And it is tough to find really good listeners. But the Bible talks a lot about listening, and in fact, it equates it with wisdom, especially in the Old Testament, in the wisdom literature, in Proverbs. And so tonight, we're going to be talking about the importance of listening. And we're going to be learning how to better listen to other people. Because when we learn to listen to others, we also are training ourselves to listen to God. So that's tonight at 6, and I'd love for you to to join us. And we, of course, have our Kids for Christ program down the hall. That's for children, uh, two-year-olds through second graders. And if you've got kids in that age group, they can enjoy class down there while we're together here in the auditorium. Let me again echo what Mike said about next week. Uh, That's our big unity service. That's at 5 o'clock in the afternoon instead of 6. We're gathering an hour earlier in order to uh, be more accommodating to those who are coming way out of the outer skirts of the county. You know, Dan Williams over at Al Hollow, I may have mentioned this, he has estimated that over a thousand people gather together in Churches of Christ on any given Sunday morning in Franklin County. And so, I think with as many congregations as are participating, which is most, we can have a house full of people that evening, next Sunday evening a week from today. I think that we will. I think if all of you show up, you know, the house is almost full as is, and it would be a wonderful thing to have, you know, to have to bring out chairs for people to sit in. I think we can do it. I'm excited about it. It's going to be an encouraging, uplifting evening, and I hope that you will want to be a part of it next Sunday. And then, of course, the week after that is Trunk or Treat. So two big Sunday nights in a row for our church family. I don't know if you guys have heard, but there's an election going on. Has anybody heard about this? Most of you, I guess. Uh, I've had a lot of thoughts throughout this election, as I'm sure you have as well. But one of the thoughts that I have had is, I would not want to be, I would hate to be a presidential debate moderator. Has anybody else thought this? Wouldn't you hate to be in the shoes of those people who are moderating these presidential debates? Uh, First of all, millions of people are watching you. Tens of millions all over the country have their eyes trained on you and, of course, the candidates. But you are the one responsible. You're sitting in the driver's seat and you've got to pick and ask tough questions. And you've got to make sure they answer those questions because they're going to try to skirt around the issues and pivot to their talking points. You've got to keep your eye on the clock and make sure you're going to wrap things up in a timely manner. You've got to make sure that you know, you want to let them debate each other. It's a debate after all. You want them to debate each other to, to a certain degree. But when they start to duke it out, I mean, you've got to step in at some point. So you've got to play referee. This is an incredibly difficult job in my mind, one that I would have no interest, I would not want to be a presidential debate moderator. You want to know another position that I would never want to be in? That is being a defendant in a courtroom where God is the judge. Being accused of a crime and having to stand before almighty God in court. Wouldn't want to be in that position. But you know what? That is exactly where God's people find themselves. That's where Judah finds herself in Micah chapter 6. And I want you to grab a Bible and go there with me, if you would. Micah chapter 6 is our text today. And today we are wrapping up this series that we've been uh, going through on the prophets. We've talked about Amos, Hosea, and now Micah. This is our eighth and final lesson. Next week we'll be moving on to something different. We're going to be in Micah 6 to wrap this up. And the image here is of God's people coming before God in court. Not a place I'd want to be. Judah has committed a number of crimes that has has brought them to this place. Among those are idolatry. We find this in the book of Micah. In one place... The prophet says they bowed down to the work of their hands. And idolatry, it's the same thing today as it was back then. We create for ourselves gods to worship. We bow down to the work of our hands instead of bowing down to our Creator, Almighty God. That's why, that's what they were doing. That is one of their heinous crimes. That's why they're standing trial before God. Another crime covetousness and stealing. They're desiring things that do not belong to them, and they are taking those by force. Something else, a failure of leadership. Those who knew better uh, were just as unjust and cruel and wicked as the rest of all people. Those who are prophets and priests and in civic leadership roles, they should know better. They should be setting the example for the rest of the people, but they weren't, and God has a big problem with the failure of the leaders among his people. And then something else, corrupt business practices and violence characterized the people during this time period. A lot of bad stuff going on. Israel, or Judah rather, had committed a lot of crimes, and because of these sins that we've listed and many more, the Lord summons Judah to stand trial before him. Look with me in Micah chapter 6 verse 1. Hear what the Lord says, Micah proclaims. Arise. You already feel like you're in a courtroom, right? Arise. Plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. God says to his people, Plead your case. I want you to imagine God Almighty saying that to you. Plead your case. Explain yourself. You do realize the impossibility of this task, right? You're standing before the all-knowing God of the universe in court. He knows everything about you. Everything. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows everything you've done in public and in private. Think about that. Everything you've ever done. He knows every violent, indecent, impure thought That you've ever had. He knows about every manipulative self-seeking attitude. That's ever motivated you in life. He knows the extent to which sin has had its way with you. And he knows you're guilty. Even before he shows up in court. He's convinced of your guilt. And then he says to you. Plead your case. What do you say? Where do you even begin? What excuse for your sinfulness could you possibly muster and use to explain yourself before God? It's like a parent turning the corner into a hallway and seeing his or her child there standing. The walls are marked up with with crayon marks. There's a box of open crayons on the floor and, and those have scattered out onto the floor. And the child there has a crayon in the right hand and in the left He's guilty. He, the parent knows what this child has been up to. And so it would be useless to say, plead your case, explain yourself, because this child has been caught in the act of coloring on the walls. And that's us. We are standing there in court with a crayon in our right hand and a crayon in our left. And the walls are covered with marks. And God says to us, plead your case. We don't have a leg to stand on. Before Judah has time to respond in Micah chapter 6, and maybe it's because a valid response does not exist, the Lord continues. He continues His speech here. Verse 2, Here, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against His people, and He will contend with Israel. God has an indictment against Israel. His people. And as you may have noticed, this is no ordinary courtroom here in this vision that we have in Micah, in this image that is being used here to describe this confrontation. The entire created order, the mountains and the foundations of the earth is called is summoned to witness God's indictment against Judah. And look what he says in verse three. Look at these questions. Oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied? you answer me this is God speaking directly to his people do you hear the sorrow in his voice what is it that I've done to you that makes you want to turn away from me God assumes here that Israel believes that he has in some way wronged them why else would they reject him and so God says I want to know what it is What is it that I have done to you that makes you want to turn your back on me and be rebellious to me and chase after other gods? What is it? God says he knows that's why the people have rejected him. And isn't that why some people reject God today? Because they believe they've been wronged by God? Because they believe God hasn't treated them fairly? Because they believe they hadn't been given a square deal by God. God has been harsh to them. God has punished them. I think that's why a lot of people turn away from God today. Because they think that God has treated them poorly. That's what Israel or Judah thought. And God says, what is it? Can you tell me what it is that I have done that has made you want to turn away from me? But the Lord again... He continues. He doesn't give them a chance to answer. In fact, he answers his own question here. He says, in a nutshell, I haven't wronged you. In fact, just the opposite is true. Look at what he says in verse 4 and 5 to his people. I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam as leaders to you. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. God is bringing up all these stories about how he's rescued his people. He's delivered his people. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord? God says, I haven't wronged you. Look at, and we learn something here. What we discover in these two verses is that Israel... God's people, they are not standing before any ordinary judge. This is no regular run-of-the-mill judge. This judge has a relationship with the defendant. This judge has a history with the accused. He has, uh, he and he recounts here, what he's done for this... People standing before him now on trial. He goes back through all the, the times and the instances and their shared history together of when he, he rescued them and when he was good to them and when he saved them. We learn here in these verses that this judge is also the savior of these people. So he plays a dual role here. He's not just a judge. He is the Savior. And he says, don't you remember? I haven't treated you wrongly. I brought you out of Egypt. I provided leadership to guide you. I delivered you in countless ways. And here you go again, turning away from me. Don't you remember what we've been through together? Don't you remember what I've done for you? And if it's us standing there, we not only get this about Moses and slavery and Balak and, and, uh, and uh, Balaam here. What we also get from God is this. Don't you remember how I sent Jesus? You think I've wronged you, obviously, because you're running away from me. But don't you remember how I sent my one and only son to die on the cross for you? I provided that great and awesome gift and it took a lot of sacrifice. On my my part, I gave of myself so that you could have life and salvation. Don't you remember? That's what God would say to us. And finally, finally, after God's speech here, Judah finally gets a chance to say something back to God. Look in verses 6 and 7. The people say, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? The people begin with this. With this question. Do you see it up here? With what shall I come before the Lord? I want you to remember this question when you leave this place today. This really is the question. This is the question for all people in every age. This is, a people, this is a question that everybody should be asking. Certainly, all God's people should be asking. What does the Lord require of me? What is it that He wants from my life? With what shall I come before the Lord? And if you notice in these verses, Judah begins answering this question, making suggestions about what God might want. And if you'll notice... Judah's proposals here are all religious activities. And they start and they're, you know, pretty obvious and they're what you might expect. But then they get increasingly outrageous. In fact, at the end they say, should we give up our our children? Should we sacrifice them before the Lord? And, you know, that is just ridiculous. Judah makes all these suggestions and proposals and they're asking, what could we possibly do to win your favor, what sort of actions should we take that will answer your obvious love for us? If it's us, maybe we would say, shall I come to church every single time the doors are open, God? Shall I be involved in every single activity that the church sponsors? Shall I give 10% of my income every week? Or maybe 10% isn't enough. Maybe it's 12. Maybe it's 15. Maybe it's 20%. Maybe it's half. Is that what you want, God? Is that how I can make you happy, God? Shall I never miss the Lord's Supper the rest of my life? Shall I do a kind deed for a neighbor every day until I die? Or maybe one deed isn't enough. Maybe I should do two or five or ten. I can keep tally, God. I can keep a chart on my wall to make sure I'm doing enough stuff to please you. What is it that you want from me, Lord? And here's the answer. Isn't it great we have an answer? The question is asked, with what shall I come before the Lord? And God answers the question. And He shares with His people what it is He requires. Look with me in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Micah says, He's told you, O man, what is good. It's nothing new. It's nothing you haven't heard before. It is as old as the law itself. He has told you, oh man, what is good. He's told you what He requires. And here it is that you do justice, that you love kindness, that you walk humbly with your God. God says, You're asking how you can win my favor. You've already won my favor, God says. Look at our shared history together. Isn't it obvious that I love you by all the ways that I've rescued you and saved you? You have won my favor. What I want now is for my love to change the way you live. I want what I've done for you to affect your lifestyle. That's how you can please me. You know, God's instructions here are so fundamental, foundational. That one ancient Jewish rabbi had this to say. 613 precepts were communicated to Moses. He's counting up all the laws from the Old Testament. 365 negative precepts. And Micah came and reduced them to three principles. This ancient rabbi says, all of the law can be summed up in what Micah says right here. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly With your God. And I think that we'd all agree that these statements provide a really good summary for the kind of people that God has called us to be. God says, What I want is for you to do justice. In other words, I want you to act with fairness, with honesty, and with integrity. Are you listening, church? I want you to be concerned with justice. Micah lived in a society where there was. Very little concern for doing what was right. And so do we. Justice means being honest in big ways, but also in the smallest routine business transactions that we encounter every day. That means if a cashier gives you extra money, you don't take it with you. You take the initiative to go back and give the extra. Because you're a person concerned... With justice and fairness and honesty and integrity. The just person seeks equality. The just person doesn't cheat. The just person lives with integrity. What else does God say? Love kindness. Some of your translations may say love mercy. Our hearts should be full of mercy and compassion for others. And I I see here that it doesn't just say have kindness... It says love, kindness. We should be people who delight in showing kindness to our neighbors. We ought to be unexpectedly gracious with others. As everybody else is concerned with repaying an eye for an eye and a a tooth for a tooth, as God has showered us unexpectedly with His grace, so should we shower others with grace as well. We're done like our society is caught up in doing. We're done returning rudeness with rudeness, harshness for harshness. Instead, we are committing ourselves to being kind to all. And God also says here, walk humbly with me. You know, sharing a right relationship with God, it always begins with humility, not arrogance. We are reminded of what Paul says in the New Testament. It is by grace you have been saved through faith so that no one can boast in his works. So when we come before God, we got to check pride at the door. God doesn't owe you anything, and He's not impressed with your good works. He doesn't exist to make you happy. He doesn't always give you what you want. We must humble ourselves before God and before His will. That is where a right relationship with God is begins. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Now, does this mean that all these religious practices that I have mentioned uh, are unimportant? No. It just means that they're secondary. If you look at these principles, they all involve relationships. God is primarily concerned. His first order of business is that we relate well to others and we relate well to Him. His people want to know what they can do to please Him in the book of Micah. And God says, you should care more about the kind of person that I want you to be. I want you to be just and kind to others. And I want you to be humble in your relationship with Me. I think about what the Proverbs writer says. To do justice and righteousness, that's more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. But it's not that these religious activities that we've mentioned are unimportant. It just means that they come after our concern for justice and kindness and a humble relationship with God. These must not come before that. Instead, they must flow out of these inner convictions, these this moral character that we've talked about. We can't get the cart before the horse here. God says, primarily, I'm concerned about who you are, and once you've laid that foundation, then you can be concerned about the things that you do. But don't start talking about what you can do to please me until you're concerned with the kind of person that you are. Lay that foundation first. And the rest will follow. So this is the judge's requirement for the accused. We're back in court. The people have all these crimes stacked up against them. They have no shot at explaining themselves to God. And so they start to say, what is it that we have to do, God? You know, what is it that you want from us? With what shall we bring before the Lord? And God says, I want you to be concerned with justice and kindness and walking humbly with me. You're standing there before him. You're standing before God, the judge. All the charges have been brought against you. All of your sins, every last one of them, even those that everybody else doesn't know about, they are laid bare in the courtroom. And there's no sentence that's tough enough for everything that you've done. But then God, the judge, announces, all of your charges have been thrown out. Your record is cleared. Someone has come forward to face the penalty for your crimes, God says. In fact, this person was put to death for those crimes. So, you can go free. Really? Really? You're a free man. You're a free woman. And we say, but surely surely, there's at least something I can do to thank you. I mean, there's got to be a way that I can at least demonstrate my gratitude that you've set me free. God says, I just, I want the way that you live to show that you know someone answered for your crimes. I want your life to reflect this reality. And we say, That's all? Well, I can do that. Can you tell me how I can do that? And God says, I want you to be just with others, I want you to be kind, I want you to love showing kindness. I want you to walk humbly in your relationship with me. That's what I'm concerned about. And that's what you can do to show me how grateful you are. And we would say to that, of course, Lord, I most certainly will do that. That's what I'll focus on every day. I'll wake up in the morning and and I'll remember that you released me even though I deserve to be punished. And so that's how I'll live in deep gratitude for you. And yet, what do we do? We forget all about it. Just like Judah. They forgot about their history with God. So do we. We forget. That we show gratitude to God. By the way that we live. Don't forget this week. That God has told you. In His word. We've asked. With what shall we bring before God. God has said. Here's what I want. Justice. Kindness. In a humble relationship with me. You know, when we started this thing, I said, I would never ever want to stand before God in court, but now I'm having second thoughts. Maybe that's exactly where I want to be. Maybe that's exactly where I want to be because that's not just my judge up there, he is my judge but that's a God with whom I share a relationship. That's not just a judge on His bench behind the podium. That's my Savior. Look at how Micah ends this book. And this is how we'll end today. This is how we'll end our sermon series on these prophets. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression? For the remnant of his inheritance. Micah chapter 7 verse 18. He does not retain his anger forever. Because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You God. Will cast all our sins. Into the depths. Of the sea. Today you are gathered in the presence. Of not just your judge, but of your Savior. Of a God who loves you. Of a God who greatly desires to cast your transgressions into the sea. A God who wants to pardon your iniquity and pass over those sins that are weighing you down. You have a chance today to come and to respond to that offer of salvation that He freely places before each of us. You can come and say, God, I want you to save me. I want you to change my life. And I never want to forget what you have done for me by sending Jesus to the cross to die for my sins. You can come and, well, you can have your your sins washed away in that water. God will cast them into the water this morning. You know, that's not just water. By faith, that is the blood of Christ that will wash you clean and pure as, and white as snow and will guarantee you a place with God forever. Is that what you want? Or do you have any other spiritual concerns you need to bring before us today? Or maybe you want to pray with a couple of the elders after worship. You have an opportunity to do that this morning. You have an opportunity to come down the aisle right now as we stand and sing together.